Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Carlos K. Hill, an associate professor of, at the University of Oklahoma. He earned his PhD at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2009 and has taught at St. Olaf College, Luther College, and Texas A&M. He is currently the Department Chair of African and African American Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Professor Hill specializes in the history of anti-Black violence and its legacies. In addition to scores of articles, he is the author of Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory, out in 2016 with Cambridge University Press. He is also the author of a forthcoming book, The 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, A Photographic History, out next year with the University of Oklahoma Press. Today, we'll be talking about his most recent book, The Murder of Emmett Till, A Graphic History. This 2020 book is the latest in Oxford University Press's graphic history series. And in the interest of full disclosure, I have also published in this series. As with other books in this Oxford series, The Murder of Emmett Till takes scholarly research and puts it into a graphic or comic format. The book also includes an excellent essay on the historical context of the murder. In this piece, Dr. Hill situates the horrific 1955 murder of a 14-year-old boy from Chicago into the history of lynching in America and into the fabric of American history. Dr. Hill brings the latest research on the case into the narrative and explains the significance of the murder, the funeral, and the trial to the history of racial violence in America. The book also includes a rich collection of primary sources from the case. Dr. Carlos Hill, welcome to New Books in History. Michael, thank you for having me. Now, before we get into the book, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a scholar of lynching and other forms of anti-Black violence in America? Well, 
Uh, for me, it all begins with uh, great mentorship uh, in college as well as in graduate school. Um, I like to think that I had two or three of the best historians in America training me as an undergraduate uh, in African, Af- or excuse me, in African American history. And based on that, who who are they? Can you name names? Yeah, I can name names for sure. <laughs> Uh, James Brewer Stewart, who's one of the great historians of abolitionism, uh, anti-slaveryism in America. Uh, Peter Radcliffe, who's one of the great labor historians, uh, African-American history slash labor historian, uh, as well as Mahmoud El-Khati, who was a long uh, serving activist in Minneapolis, uh, but sort of moved into teaching African-American history later in his life. And so these, those three men um, really shaped me and, and gave me a sense of direction in terms of why I wanted to study history. I went on, uh, based on their mentorship and tutelage, went on to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign uh, to work with um, David Rodiger, um, who's one of the great historians of whiteness, um, and in, in sort of following Dave Rodiger to Illinois, I kind of uh, came into contact with um, and became uh, someone who was mentored by uh, Sundiata Chajua, who's one of the great historians of lynching and racial violence, among other things. Um, and so working with Sundiata uh, around his research on list, lynching, I became uh, enamored with it. And actually, once I, you know, began to do research, I couldn't look away. I needed to continue to understand this really, you know, the really gruesome practice, uh, cultural practice of lynching. And, you know, that interest has taken me to where I am today. Um, and in many days, I'm like, I need to study something else. This, this is just too traumatizing this is just too painful but um there's so much to say there's so much that needs to be said i've you know over these years wanted to continue to say things uh as much as i can say um to illuminate not just the history of lynching but the history of racial violence so uh, that's kind of where i come from yeah that's an excellent lineage and um i really empathize with um that uh, that sense you have of the importance of studying these subjects, yet the emotional toll it takes upon you, the researcher. Um, I work on colonial uh, history of violence in Southeast Asia, both in the racial violence in the colonial period and political violence in Cold War Southeast Asia. And I've had some really tough moments when I was doing a, a project on ex- uh, postcards of executions of Vietnamese. Um, and... Uh, I really see these as analogs to the um, the American lynching postcards, which uh, you, you've worked on and familiar with, um, and uh, and actually found that uh, that historiography from American history is so useful. And also David Rudiger's work um, on whiteness, which is absolutely foundational for my study of colonialism and um, French colonial whiteness. Um, so I'm I'm like you. I'm very interested in the contemporary representation of the history of racial violence. And one of the things I've been startled by, and somewhat bemused, but in many ways really sort of saddened by, 
is the way in which popular culture and specifically HBO, um, the TV shows, The Watchmen and um, Lovecraft Country more recently have been the way white America has learned about important things like the 1921 Tulsa massacre and the so-called so-called sundown towns, which was featured in a recent episode of um, Lovecraft country. I don't know if you've, you've seen that, but um, it, um, you know, it's just sort of saddening that it takes HBO to teach white America about this stuff. Um, As an expert on the subject, what do you think the United States as a whole, and maybe you want to speak, maybe it's different, different for, Black America and white America, different communities. Um, still, what what does the United States as a whole and the communities in the United States still need to know about racial violence and specifically anti-black violence? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we would have to uh, start with uh, the basics. Um, I think most Americans learn about this history through popular culture because it is not taught in secondary education. And in college, you have to seek it out, um, typically, uh, to, to, to learn about it. And so the American education system is really failing most Americans when it comes to understanding the history of slavery, the history of lynching, the history of, uh, of state sanction, terrorism against black people, uh, the role of private violence against against black people um, and all of this all of this violence in one way or another has been about maintaining white supremacy uh, and white privilege and you know that story um, is a story that most white people don't learn about in school and when they are confronted with it um, they are resistant to it because it sounds so foreign. It sounds made up. It sounds like this is about gaining reparations. This is about gaining affirmative action. This is about trying to maneuver and get something from white people versus white people really uh, learning about owning up to the history of this country and how it's negatively impacted, um, adversely impacted black people. And so I think the, the main thing that, white people have to come to terms with is just the depth of violence uh, that they have perpetuated against black people going back to the founding of this country all the way to the present. That there is a a deep and long river of racial violence um, that when you actually step back and, and, and have to think about it, it is overwhelming, uh, it is demoralizing, and it will give you a completely different understanding of, your, of, of white's place in American history. Um, and so I think, you know, I think of recognition of the, just the, the pervasiveness of violence, the depth of that violence, the hostility that, that white, not white individuals, but white society has had to black people that has motivated that violence is what I think I, as a, as a historian of lynching and racial violence, when I'm teaching, you know, in the university of Oklahoma or at Texas tech for, um, I am trying to get white students to understand that pervasiveness and that depth of the violence. 
and tr try to understand temporary events uh, in, 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 in that context. Because if you, if you, you know, if you are following the headlines today and you don't have any knowledge of the violence that occurred against black people previously, you, scratch, you would scratch your head to wonder why are African-American people so angry about quote unquote police brutality? Why are they so angry about the criminal uh, injustice system, right? What, why, where's all this anger coming from? Like, can't we just, can't they just be patient and just let law authority, legal authorities do their job, right? And so understanding this long river of violence and actually not just violence, indifference to that violence is why we are where we are in this country. And uh, without a knowledge of that history, you're, you're decidedly at a disadvantage to understand and even more so to do something about it. Um, so, so for me, uh, that's why it's, it's so important for white people to um, not necessarily understand all the specifics, but to understand, have a conception of the, just the long history of racist violence, terrorist violence against black people. Yeah, and you know, as you're speaking, you're talking about the the indifference to that history. I mean, I would, I uh, I would say the intentional silencing of that history and uh, being left out. And uh, unfortunately, uh, far too often in the academy, when this subject is being taught, it's being taught in African American history or ethnic studies, and not fully integrated into American history. Um, perhaps I'm overgeneralizing. I'm a world historian, not an Americanist, so perhaps I'm overgeneralizing there. But definitely at the high school level there, and that it's, and that you know the the history of lynching and other forms of anti-black violence are black history. But no, this is this is white history. This is American history, and and it's as essential to whiteness as um, as anything else. So, um, so yeah. it, when um, you know, admittedly the murder of Emmett Till is one of the most well-known lynchings in American history. So even, even folks who don't have a great education or a great knowledge of, um, of racial violence in the United States uh, know the name Emmett Till. Um, and there's, there's a body, qu quite a bit of a body of literature on this. Why, why did you want to tell the story again? And why did you want to tell it in a graphic format? Yeah. Um, I came to the idea to write something uh, on the murder of Emmett Till in 2014, uh, 2013 slash 2014. And initially I wanted to write a very small book, a short book that kind of updated uh, the narrative on the Emmett Till murder in light of the FBI's two year investigation beginning in 2004. Um, of, you know, the Emmett Till case. And so they produce voluminous records from their research. And I wanted to be the first historian to kind of write a, an updated narrative. 
lo and behold, there were other historians thinking the same thing. And, you know, in 2015, 2018, and in 2019, there were new books on Emmett Till. And so my book comes out in 2020. And so luckily for me, um, between 2013 and 2014, I had a conversation with Oxford University Press about what um, I wanted to write about and, and if there was a possibility to work together. And so um, I talked to them a little bit about Emmett Till, created a proposal based on that initial kind of a short book, a traditional book, short book on Emmett Till based on FBI, the FBI's uh, reopening of the case and some of the research materials they were able to uh, gather up. And, you know, they, they liked the idea uh, because the 60, 60th anniversary of the Emmett Till murder was coming up in 2015. So they thought short book to commemorate that would work well. Um, but in, in the process of uh, them reading the proposal, they thought, you know, we have this book called Abina uh, that is doing really well. And it strikes us that this story of the Emmett Till murder could be uh, nicely adapted to the graphic form. What do you think about that? And at the time, again, this is the only book that had been published with, with the history series was a bean. And so I said, uh, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> I, I really want this book to kind of be a, a second book that I can go up for a full professor. I, I, I don't think a graphic history will quote unquote count. And so I was, I was a little bit, on the fence with it, but after about a month or so, I kind of committed to doing the graphic history, not knowing the first thing about creating a graphic history. And so I just kind of took the leap. Um, Before I really understood uh, what I was getting into, I just thought to myself, what other moment in my career will I have a chance to do a graphic history? Why not take this opportunity um, and kind of explore this history in this format that, you know, I'd never really considered writing in. And so fast forward five years later, and the book is out. And, you know, over that five years that it took me to kind of, you know, write, rewrite, work with an artist, all of it, you know, I've realized, or I, I, I definitely came to an understanding of, of why I wanted to do this as a graphic history. And, and I think the biggest part is that was the challenge to try to tell the story visually, to make the, the, the visual rendering of the story capture my audience's uh, imagination, to help them understand who Emmett Till was visually, not just, um, you know, not just textually, just but to be able to bring him to life for for my audience in ways that he hadn't been previously brought to life, and so that has you know that is the thing that motivated me um, to you know to to definitely to finish the graphic history. Um, there were moments where I was like, ah, I just don't have time for this. This is too hard. Um, this is too tedious. Um, but I think for me, it was 
telling the story in a new and interesting way uh, and making it as engaging as possible with the visual form was kind of my goal. Right. And the, for the story of Emmett Till and especially the significance of his funeral and his mother's decision to have the open co- uh, casket and uh, publish the photographs, which we'll, we'll talk about later on, the visual in his story is so important at the time and the way in which, um, uh, again, the, the, that, the, those photographs of what happened to him, um, I mean, are just, I mean, just one of those profound moments in American history. So I think that the doing a visual story intersects so well with the, uh, your, your case study, your history. Um, could I, could I ask you what, what was, what did you find most tedious and most, uh, uh, agonizing in the in the process of doing the graphic history because I, I I did one and and strangely enough I was not trained to design a graphic history in graduate school <laughs> I was a, a Tyler Stovall student and the, yeah. the last thing we ever talked about were comic books um, um, what was what were what were some of the biggest challenges for you well you know the the I think the biggest there were two challenges um, one was sort of intellectual the other was sort of just uh, practical uh, intellectual one was you know I have you know been teaching about the history of lynching and racial violence all these years Emmett Till is always um, present in my classes I talk about the case um, you know particularly when we get to the civil rights movement period um, but what I realized when I began to try to um, when I when I began researching his this case earnestly to write the book, I was beginning to how much I didn't know about the case, how much uh, we as historians don't know about the Emmett Till case, and so uh, the challenge for me in 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 telling the story in this graphic format is was that there were so many gaps. Uh, in knowledge, in terms of what happened to Till, um, you know, the, just the basic timeline of when he was kidnapped to when his body was discovered. There's very little definitive information that we have, and so part of my challenge as a historian was to try to stay as faithful as I could to the, but at the same time. Um, you know, I want, I didn't want those gaps to be, um, I-, I wanted to do my best to use this graphic medium to bring to life those, those parts of the story that we don't really know what happened. And, you know, and so uh, I wanted to, on the one hand, be faithful to the record, but not let it, not let it circumscribe, you know, uh, completely circumscribe the story that I could tell. Because I think one of the, the things that I had to, to, to think about was, you know, how to, um, you know, how to make sure that I tell a full story, a full, you know, like, and when you're doing a, a textual kind of uh, analysis. You can you can admit to that there are gaps in knowledge. You can t- 
talk about this, you know, these are some theories for why some historians say this or that happened. But you can't really do that for a graphic history. You can't, you, it, it would make it very unappealing as a narrative. And so you do have to make some, some decisions about storyline, plot, what most likely happened, what, what are you willing to, um, you know, to sort of, um, you know, you I mean, you just have to make different choices. And so the challenge was uh, making sure that I stay faithful to the record, um, but not so much that it's circumscribed, telling a really interesting story. Um, the practical um, challenge was just working with the, with the, with the illustrator and, you know, you know, really carefully explaining how each scene should be rendered, going back and forth about, is it really doing what we, we want it to do? Um, making sure that, um, you know, the characters uh, that were in the graphic history would have sounded like, you know, the ways in which we are portraying them is the language that they're using appropriate and representative of how they would have spoke at the time. Um, these are things that we don't really consider when we're writing traditional histories, but it becomes really important when you're trying to create an authentic uh, narrative. And so that was the tedious part. I, I can, I remember, I don't know if you, you did this, Michael, but um, I, I can recall just, you know, very slowly and carefully acting out each of the scenes. Like, okay, would Mamie have said this? Would, did, would Till would have sounded like, does he sound too much like an adult? Does he sound too much like me? Does he sound like a 14 year old boy uh, talking to his mother? Does he, you know, like, so I, I really, you know, you know, and, you know, for, for months on end would, just, would be acting out the scenes and going back and saying, no, 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 it's not, it shouldn't be that way. I need to say it this way. And then I would say it and say it and say it and feel good about it, come back to it later, change it. You know, it's, that was actually the most enjoyable part of it is sort of me, you know, acting out the script that I was creating and, and feeling my way through um, the the dialogue that was that was tedious, but it was also part of the joy of it. Yeah, and that, I mean that just takes the historian's craft and the your experience in relationship to your research just to a whole different level. Um, that, that's fascinating. So when I first heard about your project, yeah. I was I was very excited. Um, I was I, I was fin- I was finishing um, my. Uh, my book for the series and, and I caught wind from the editors about this book, really excited. But to be honest, I was also nervous. Um, I'm old enough to remember the initial backlash that Art, Art Spiegelman received when he published a mouse, um, his cartoon rendering of his parents' experience in the Shoah or the Holocaust. And at that time in the late 1980s, some critics questioned whether cartoons were an appropriate genre to discuss Auschwitz. Did you have any similar concerns about using the graphic genre to tell Emmett Till's story and to engage the history of lynching? I did, but it wasn't enough to, um, it was not enough 
to, you know, for me to walk away from the project, uh, walk away from the idea of doing a graphic history, um, you know, in part because, you know, most of the people, my colleagues, my friends who I mentioned the book to, uh, they did not have, you know, a, a negative reaction to it being a, a, a graphic history. Um, and it was always very difficult to explain to people, like, what is a graphic history? And I was like, well, think of a graphic novel. Think of a, a comic book. Um, there are uh, panels and dialogue and, 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 and drawings and, you know, like, and so I, that, they're like, okay, I got it, I got it. But, um, I, you know, my main, you know, concern was to try to tell the story as authentically as possible. Mm-hmm. My, um, my concern was, um, you know, and I, I wanted to tell it as authentically as possible because I didn't want people to think that I was trivializing it. And so for me, the trivialization of it wasn't gonna come through it being in a graphic form. It was gonna be the, which the story unfolded and the language that I use to represent the story. And so one of the most difficult decisions that I had to make was to really use racial epithets in, in, the, in the book uh, and to really, and to also represent um, how I represented Till's um, brutalized black body in the, in the graphic history, how I represented Lynch in in the graphic history, those were the decisions that really concerned me, not so much the graphic history format. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off mm-hmm. yeah well I, I in my humble opinion you did an excellent job it is not trivialized it is powerful um and um uh, important uh read but also um gut-wrenching um you know i know the story <laughs> and i man I, I i can't tell you how much i was dreading coming to that page um of the of the funeral but I, I thought it was dealt with, with just, you know, great sophistication and, uh, and care. Um, so let's get into the book. You tell the story of Emmett Till's murder in four chapters, the whistling incident, the kidnapping, the murder, the trial, and the aftermath. Um, will you walk us through the narrative, you know, fairly quickly? Um, and, to, and let's start with, you know, who was Emmett Till and how did he wind up in Money, Mississippi? Yes. So... You know, Emmett Till 
was born and bred in Chicago, Illinois. His mother, Mamie Till, her family had traveled, who had migrated to, to Chicago during the Great Migration. Um, and actually the first wave of the Great Migration in the early 19-teens, um, his family migrated, uh, Mamie Till's family migrated to Chicago. And so as a young boy uh, in the 1940s, 1950s, Emmett Till grows up in Chicago. And for Mamie, um, life in Chicago is great. There's opportunity. There isn't as much racial violence as there is in Mississippi. But for Mamie and, and the family, like black families that migrated to, to the urban north, there is a desire for their children uh, to experience the South, to connect with their Southern roots and heritage. And so during the summer, uh, Black families would often accompany, but sometimes send uh, their children back South to see, to visit relatives, um, et cetera. And so Emmett Till in the summer of 1955 was traveling to Monaby uh, to spend two weeks with his um, his great, um, excuse me, with his with his relatives and specifically with Mose Wright um, and his family, and so you know uh, Emmett Till arrives to Money, Mississippi, with Mose Wright um, in August or late August, August twenty eighth, nineteen uh, nineteen fifty five. Only after a couple of days. Does ill does does till um, sort of uh, get into some trouble, right? Uh, he gets into some trouble by uh, you know whistling, uh, kind of out of the blue whistling at a white woman, which was a big no no. So if if I could just quickly interrupt, um, why was there this uh, obsession amongst Southern white males with protecting white women? And can you can you explain the the racial and gender dynamics of this, uh, this event to us? Yeah, I mean, this is, um, this is something that's hard to, 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 to talk about in, in a nutshell, but I would say that uh, white women and specifically interracial sexual relations between white women and black men were taboo in the Jim Crow South and actually throughout America. But white, what white women and what interracial sexual relations, interracial marriage represents for whites, particularly in the Delta, is a threat to uh, white racial purity. Uh, it represents uh, social equality with whites, the ability for black men to have relationships, let alone to be married to white women represented a kind of social equality. And so uh, undue attention to white women in particular was read as a threat to the system of, of, of white supremacy and segregation. And so Emmett Till's seemingly innocent whistle was understood as a grave trespass and a threat to that could undermine the system of white supremacy. And so a, a simple whistle, right, uh, meant much, much more in the Jim Crow South. 
and in part explains why um, he was brutally murdered. Um, but that's that's sort of the the background, the backstory to why um, you know his whistle was um, why white why, why you know why Carolyn Bryant's uh, white male uh, family members responded in the way that they did to Emmett Till's whistle. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions I had is why was Emmett Till kidnapped, tortured, and murdered in secret? Um, this is 1955, but prior to this, most lynchings were very public and very communal events, really sort of a collective uh, expression of white supremacy. But in, in this case, in 1955, it's carried out under the cover of darkness and the perpetrators went uh, to great pains to hide their crime and also to hide his body. Whereas in the history of lynching, there's much public display of the body. So what, what's different about 1955? Yeah. Well, I'll start by, by saying that um, while I talk about uh, uh, Emmett Till's uh, killing, as a lynching, um, I think technically speaking, it's a murder. Um, And it's a murder because unlike lynchings, Emmett Till's murder was not publicly sanctioned. It it did not happen in the open um, for the consumption of white spectators. Uh, Lynchings at, at their core is not just about the killing of black people in public. It's about the consumption of that killing by white people in public. And through that, lynching gets lynching uh, gained its legitimacy and its social power. It is the lynchings being, you know, these killings being witnessed by hundreds and sometimes thousands of white people, right? And the dissemination of images of white people consuming right, those killings is what gave lynchings, it's what makes lynchings different from simple murder, but more specifically what gave lynching its social power. And so J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant were not, did not lynch Till, they murdered Till, and they murdered Till because uh, in, in, in secret, because lynchings, you know, uh, of the 1920s and 30s, and even the 1940s, the, the, those classic lynchings that I just described really um, were of a, a bygone era, right? You just didn't see black in the same way in the 1950s being being publicly executed like they were in the 19-teens, 20s, and uh, 30s, right? That just lynching as a practice had had began to decline in that way. And so the other part of it is, is by the 1950s, there is a civil rights movement. And this early civil rights movement has, is, is beginning to put pressure on state government, federal government to reform, right? To create various reforms around civil rights. And so white Southerners are increased, feel increasingly under pressure, right? Uh, to, um, to 
there there's a sense that change is going is is happening and is going to happen and so the best thing that whites can do is to try to block it as much as possible and so you know Emmett Till's murder came on the heels of the Brown v. Board um, the the important Supreme Court case that desegregated schools and so at the same time that, that that's happening, black people are beginning to mobilize uh, to, to register to vote. Um, and those are making inroads. And so there's this sense that Southern society is changing. Uh, Southerners need to try to block this change as effectively as possible. And so, you know, lynchings and particularly just racial violence that spilled onto national, international newspapers made the system much more vulnerable to attack from the outside. And Southerners being cognizant of this, um, try their best to downplay the kind of violence that's occurring, try to play up how, how happy and content Black people are with the Southern way of life. And, and so these, you know, story of a brutal murder of a 14-year-old boy would play well transformational change in the South, the very thing that segregationists wanted to block. And so the Till's, Till's case figures into that entire narrative in that way. But I also feel like just more specific to J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant, um, there was some guilt um, uh, for killing, right, a 14-year-old boy. There was a, a fear that perhaps whites would not protect them f- or, or, you know, from being, you know, uh, being uh, held accountable for his murder. And so, you know, I think that's part of the story uh, is their, their sense of vulnerability. But I think ultimately, it's really about, especially how the case was handled, it's really about the threat that it posed to, and how it jeopardized the system of segregation. Well, well how, how did the authorities respond to the case? Um, and what were, in the, in, the, in the initial reaction to the discovery of the body and the murder, and then in the subsequent trial, what were the racial rules for justice? in the South at this time? Yeah, I mean, the, the authorities um, responded as, as they would normally. Actually, let me take that back. Um, you know, most right reports to the sheriff, the Tallahatchie sheriff, that he, excuse me, the Floor County sheriff that, he, you know, his, his, um, um, that, that Emmett Till has been, um, has been abducted and, you know, and he was not brought back and, you know, they, he needed their assistant to, to locate and, you know, um, began a, a search for the body and, and with, with Mose Wright, um, ultimately they don't find him, uh, but they do 
continue to look. His body emerges, um, you know, two days, two, two days, uh, two and a half, two days after the body, um, you know, had, after Till had been abducted. And, um, you know, because Moe's right, tells them that, you know, Roy Bryan and J.W. Milam are the two men that kidnapped him, which he was told not to do by J.W. Milam and Roy Bryan. Uh, they know who to go to talk to and ultimately arrest for, for, for Till's murder. And so, you know, initially it seemed like the local authorities were taking this case seriously and that they wanted to get to the bottom of, of what occurred. Um, with, you know, the national media getting a hold of the case. Um, and then definitely when the, you know, in the aftermath of the funeral, the stakes for, um, you know, you know, appearing to, for there to be uh, justice in the Jim Crow South took on a greater, greater significance um, because of all the reasons that I mentioned before. Um, with that said, um, the local authorities did not investigate, do a, do a, what we would, what we would consider a thorough investigation of what occurred. There were many witnesses that they failed to bring, you know, to, to the fore. Um, they, there was just, um, just basic things that, uh, the local authorities did not do, refused to do, um, you know, to get down, get, to get to the bottom of what occurred. And so in the end, uh, they created a situation where even though, you know, J.W. Milan and Roy Bryant never took the stand and never tried to defend, you know, you know, explain why they took him, how they brought him back, um, Despite that, uh, and despite, you know, Till's, you know, you know, body, you know, you know, beaten and brutalized, um, you know, the, the defense um, was unable to, to, you know, to, to demonstrate, to prove to, you know, a, a segregated uh, jury that, um, you know, he was, he was, he was murdered by those men, even though they did not attempt to defend themselves in any way. The, the case became really about, um, you know, it became about whether or not the body was Till's body. Uh, it became about um, what Till had, what did, did Till, uh, you know, assault um, Carolyn Bryant when he visited the store. It became about, the ex other things about the case and not whether or not, um, you know, those two men murdered him. Right. And, and we, we now, we now know that she lied on the stand, correct? Yes. She, um, she uh, Carolyn Bryant, uh, testified that Emmett Till, um, physically accosted her. He grabbed her by the arm. He grabbed her around the waist um, and that frightened her. She felt threatened. She, con she continuously refers to him as a man versus a child. 
um, in order to insinuate or, or in order to uh, emphasize how much fear she felt because this wasn't a boy. This was a man who was accosting me and my husband wasn't there to protect me. And so all these, these, this, this narrative, right, was spawned to really create a sense of fear and aggrievement so that, you know, you know, it made sense to whites, you know, who were deciding the fate of Roy Bryan and J.W. Milam that they took this, 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 this person, this man, this child's life because a white woman had been assaulted and a white woman had been threatened. And given the history of lynching and racial violence, this is what happens to black men, black people who assault, who harass white people. And so this is, this is the unspoken narrative in, you know, uh, for whites and the tribe, for white Southerners in particular, like Emmett Till assaulted a white woman. We cannot let that stand, right? That, that is a direct affront to the culture of white supremacy. And so this is what, this is how the prosecution was able to pivot the case to make it about Emmett Till, not about J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant. And they were successful in doing that. Yeah. And the, your discussion of the, the importance of uh, calling Emmett Till a man and yeah. uh, that trope of fear of black masculinity was uh, really powerful in the way that you presented that in, uh, in the book. Um, so let's, if we could uh, talk a bit about the funeral, and this is just such a significant moment in American history here. Um, why did uh, Mamie tell his, his mother um, de- uh, demand to stop the burial in Money, Mississippi and have the body brought to Chicago? And, and then why did she insist on the open casket funeral? Um, and, and also, if you could say a few words on the impact of uh, the mourners um, seeing Emmett Till's horrifically disfigured body and the, the publication of the photos in Jet and other periodicals, um, the, the impact of those images and, and what role they play in this case study, in this history, but also in American history. Yeah. Um, I would say that Mamie Till uh, is in disbelief that, you know, after a week, a short week, her son has been murdered, brutally murdered. She's in disbelief. And I think there's an inkling of her that is hoping because his, his, his face was so badly beaten and disfigured. I think there was a part of her that needed to see his, to see him, to, to make sure that it was actually him. And so the, you know, so they find the body um, and uh, Sheriff Strider tells Mose Wright after Mose Wright identifies it as Emmett Till that he needs to bury the body ASAP. And he, he wants this to be 
a non-issue, right? He wants to literally bury this case <laughs> uh, for it to be a non-issue and understands that uh, if the body and, you know, and even at this moment, photos of the body are able to be taken and that gives, that will give life to this case. This case will continue to, to reverberate. And so the order is to, to, to bury it before sundown. Of course, Mamie Till gets wind of this and puts a halt to it because again, she wants to make sure this is her son, that this is her boy. And so she gets uh, authorities in Chicago to intervene. They stop, they block the burial. Um, the burial uh, in, in Mississippi and they uh, fight to get the body returned to Chicago and they win that fight, but only uh, if they, they will, the Mississippi authorities will send the body to Chicago, but only if they uh, agree not to open the casket, not to open the, uh, not to open uh, the casket. And if and under those circumstances, the body can be sent. And so they agree to that. But once it arrives, Mamie um, tells the mortician that she wants the body, she wants the casket open, and she must see, you know, if this is her son. And so he does. And, you know, Mamie carefully studies the, the you know, from head to toe, uh, you know, the body and comes to the conclusion that, that it's him. And, you know, she decides, you know, according to people in the room and, you know, her kind of, uh, her memory later, that at that moment she decided she wanted the world to, to see what they had done, what those, you know, what, what the system of segregation had done to her boy, but specifically J.W. Milam and what Brian had done to her, her child. And so, you know, I talk about, you know, her decision in the book um, as, a, as a courageous one, um, uh, but also as, um, I think the word that I use um, in the book is it was a, and I'm, I should know this because I, I spent a lot of time thinking about what's the, what's the best way to, to capture this. But I think it, it, it was about the way in which she, I think I use it as subversive. It's a subversive, it was a subversive act mm -hmm. um, in the sense that she was trying to turn on, its, turn on its head the ways in which images of brutalized black bodies have been deployed uh, by whites. Um, um, so for, for Mamie, it was about undermining Jim Crow segregation by showing the, the, just the, the brutal violence versus how whites would consume images of lynching uh, to, to, as sort of souvenirs uh, of their role in, in a lynching and, and, and as a celebratory souvenir of a lynching. Right. And so she really turned that on its head by deciding to take a photograph uh, and distribute that photograph of her son's brutalized body. Yeah, I thought that contrast between 
the way you discuss the white production and consumption of images of violence on black bodies from the 20s, 30s, and contrast that with um, uh, 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 Mamie Till taking charge, taking ownership of this image and saying, no, here's what it is. I mean, that, that was a really powerful moment there. Um, and I thought you did an excellent job there. And yeah, the way you described it as the subversive act, um, but just yeah. so powerful. Um, at the at the end of the book, um, you uh, have an excellent set of guidelines and suggestions for how to teach difficult issues such as the murder of Emmett Till. Can you walk us through your approach to teaching these subjects in the classroom? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there is no one way to teach uh, hard history, difficult histories, especially those that revolve around race. But I think for for me, um, I've learned that you have to teach these subjects with great empathy. You have to teach these subjects with great sensitivity uh, if you're going to be effective. And so, you know, I realized in working on this book that it may end up in the hands of a high school teacher, a middle school teacher, um, who may or may not have had, have a lot of experience in teaching hard history. And especially hard history that involves the use of racial epithets. Um, and so I decided later in, you know, as I finished the book that I need to give and help to equip the teachers who may not, you know, have a lot of experience with teaching African-American history or just hard history. And so those guidelines at the end are about providing, you know, a, a, a rationale for teaching this, 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 you know, this graphic history with great empathy and with sensitivity. And so I really emphasize, um, you know, in the, in the sort of the guidelines, building trust, right, between uh, instructor and student and some, some ideas about how to go about doing that being very transparent, right, about how you're going to teach the subject and why you're teaching the subject. Really explain that uh, and emphasize that before ever uh, having a conversation about um, this, this, this history. And I think, uh, you know, the biggest thing um, that I wanted to, to try to emphasize is that, you know, you in, in you know what I've learned from teaching you know this this history over the years is that more so than other subjects uh, in American history, African American history, the history of lynching and racial violence makes people really uncomfortable. Um, the 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 horror of lynching photographs, the horror of you know of under you know of of reading slave narratives, um, you know, the brutality that enslaved people suffered. These things make people uncomfortable, make people emotionally vulnerable. And, 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 and when that is the case, it's ever important for 
uh, an instructor to have a relationship uh, in, in, a, in a relationship built around trust and consensus building um, for, for students to feel comfortable and confident that they can be vulnerable and share in the class. And so in, in recognizing that this book may be adopted by middle school teachers, high school teachers, who this is their first time doing this, I wanted to make sure to, to make that clear. Yeah, yeah, no, I found that, I found your, your guidelines just really, really useful. And as, as someone who teaches a lot of hard history, um, it was, it was um, yeah, really eye-opening. Um, so you've been really generous with your time and I, and I appreciate that, but I've got two more questions before we, we let you go. Um, first, can you suggest two books related to this conversation that you'd urge our listeners to read? Yeah. I mean, I, I had a similar um, conversation probably um, a week ago about um, what books would I suggest uh, in particular white people to read, to learn, to go back to your initial um, question. What do white people need to know about the history of, of racial violence? Um, I would say one book that uh, I think kind of explodes some of the myths uh, around whiteness um, is for sure Jim Lowen's Lies My Teacher Told Me. Um, I don't know if, if you've uh, encountered that book, Michael, but that's definitely um, a book that really helps us to understand why there are so, there's so much white ignorance. Um, structural racial violence and, and just black history in general. And then another book that I think explodes racist myths and mythologies and does it effectively um, is a book um, um, uh, that's entitled um, the, When Affirmative Action Was White. And that book really helps us to understand modern sense how whiteness is deeply connected to unearned privilege uh, and just simply racism. And, you know, it turns on its head this idea of affirmative action as something that Black people have benefited from at, to the exclusion of whites. Um, but in fact, historically, right, affirmative action and even contemporarily affirmative action, uh, whites have been the main beneficiary of it. And so I would say, you know, for, for whites who are trying to grapple with this history, make sense of the history, I think two really effective books are uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me and When Affirmative Action Was White. Excellent. And, and finally, what are you working on now and, and what can we hope to see from you next? Yeah, so I have just completed a book on the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, which in, for, some, from, for a lot of historians who study this, this history, is one of, if not the, you know, most destructive slash deadliest uh, episodes of anti-Black violence in American history. And so next year is the 100th anniversary 
of the Tulsa Race Massacre. And my goal was to, to write a book that commemorated that, that the 100 year anniversary, but, but more specifically uh, to write a book that honored the victims and survivors of the race massacre. And so, um, you know, I just completed that book. Um, it's right now speeding through production so that it can come out um, by March of 2021. Great. Well, I look forward to that. And uh, so, Professor Hill, thank you so much for your time and thank you for this powerful work. You are so welcome, Michael, and thank you for having me on. So this has been a conversation with Dr. Carlos K. Hill, chair of the Department of African and African-American Studies at the University of Oklahoma, about his new book, The Murder of Emmett Till, A Graphic History, out in 2020 with Oxford University Press. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.